Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It's almost two and a half years since the 39-year-old Emmanuel Macron shook up the French political establishment with a landslide election win that made him the youngest president in France's history. Macron assumed office, promising a new kind of presidency that was neither of the left nor the right and vowing to undertake sweeping economic reforms, in particular an overhaul of the country's labour laws. As we approach the midpoint of Macron's presidency, or at least of the first term of that presidency, it's a good time to ask, how is he doing? And no better person to ask than our Paris correspondent, Laura Marlowe, who joins me here in studio. Laura, good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Laura, Emmanuel Macron will be halfway through his first term on November 7th. He'll turn 42 in December. How has France changed since he came to office? For me, living and working in France, the biggest change is the perception. Uh, The perception of the leadership and the perception of France as a country Um, During the Hollande presidency, one had the impression that France really didn't count for anything anymore. And suddenly with Macron, uh, it's it's sort of a major actor in world affairs again. And you see Macron with Putin and Xi Jinping. He's leaving for China at the end of the week. Uh, He talks to um, Donald Trump almost every week. Uh, He talks to the president of Iran, uh, Rouhani, um, for hours at a time on the phone. So he's he's a sort of go-to man, an intermediary between all of these these trouble spots and great powers. And the French and and the rest of the world have a perception that that France is really a player again. Um, I think that's the most important way in which it's changed. It's also the, the economy is improving. Um, unemployment has gone from 9.6% down to 8.5% since Macron took office. Now, that's still very high by by Western developed country standards, but for France, it's the lowest it's been in 10 years. Uh, And the economy is improving. I was at a briefing last week at the Elysee uh, with with his social affairs uh, advisor, and he was saying, well, the fact that people aren't complaining about unemployment anymore, they're complaining about low purchasing power, this shows we're making progress. Uh, So the French always have to find something to complain about, but it, it has shifted. The focus has shifted. You you refer there to his predecessor, François Hollande, and there's no doubt abroad, certainly, um, Macron is a much higher profile and he's seen as a much more dynamic leader. What about his standing at home? How popular is he in France? Uh, his There were two polls within the last week which showed him at 37%, at the lower one, and 44%. That was the Paris Match um, poll which is actually for France quite high, and especially compared to his ratings at the height of the Gilets jaunes crisis last year. In December of 2018, his popularity rating was 23%. So he's gone from 23 up to 44, if you believe the highest poll. Uh, He's averaged about 34% since April. Uh, So basically, he recovered. And some people think that his recovery from the Gilets jaunes crisis, which really shook his presidency very severely, is his greatest accomplishment in office. I'm I'm not sure I would go that far, but it was certainly quite a a feat of of politicking. And who likes him? Who doesn't like him? and, and, And why? Um, the more educated you are and the more money you have, the more you like Macron. 
basically. And the less educated and the less money you have, the more you hate him. And that hatred of Macron was really what united the Gilets Jaunes. Um, I, I hate to say this, but the French are begrudgers. And uh, there is this very deeply ingrained class hatred going back to the French Revolution, going back to 1789, that anyone who's had privileges that you haven't had, you've got to tear them down and guillotine them, guillotine them if you can. Um, it's significant that during the Gilets Jaunes uh, protest, he was actually guillotined in effigy. Uh, which is just a very violent gesture. Uh, <laughs> it was quite frightening. Uh, but again, you know, he talked his way out of it. He he started what he called the Great National Debate. He went all over France for two months, and he did these sort of town hall meetings with. It was usually in the mairie and in, in the town hall, and um, he would talk for up to seven hours at a time. I've never seen a politician do this, and he would talk and talk and talk and talk, and he would answer every single question, and he knew every dossier backwards and forwards and upside down. And you know, for for most people, I think it would get a bit dull, but but the French were really impressed with this, and they took it on the one hand as a show of humility on his part. He was coming and answering to the people, and on the other hand, it showed his his intellectual brilliance, and they also were impressed with that, and that accounts for his his resurrection in the opinion polls. He arrived, of course, at the head of a new political movement, La République en Mars, uh, that he founded himself, and and went through to a, a second round poll against Marine Le Pen of the what used to be known as the National Front, so that the old um, establishment left and right parties were vanquished, you know, very early in the, in the presidential election. Where does the political opposition stand now? How strong is the opposition to Macron now? Uh, the opposition is is pretty feeble. Um, Les Républicains, which is the, the mainstream conservative party, uh, their leader, their former leader, uh, Laurent Vauquier, had to resign. He he tried to move them quite far to the right, I mean, towards the Marine Le Pen's party. And he he basically was, was driven out. There's a new leader called Christian Jacob, who's frankly very lackluster. He's just a, he's a deputy in the National Assembly. Um, they did they performed extremely poorly. The last elections were the European elections at the end of May. I think they got nine percent. And when you think that this is the the neo gaullist party that ruled France for decades, and they only got nine percent, and the socialists are in even worse shape. The socialist party is is moribund virtually. I think they got six percent in the, in the European elections. Um, so the only real opposition to Macron comes from Marine Le Pen and the extreme right. Um, the, her Rassemblement National, but she's not doing very well in the polls either. Um, and, and actually, the, the Gilets Jaunes, which was a leaderless movement, which destroyed any leaders who started to, to um, pop up they, as soon as someone um, was seen too much on television or was seen as a spokesperson, they, they knocked them down. They, again, were, were the single biggest threat to Macron's presidency, and they are not really an organized political movement. Uh, that said, a lot of the Gilets jaunes um, protesters identified with the Rassemblement National, with, with Marine Le Pen's RN party. Uh, they're very... 
sociologically very close to the RN. They tend to be country people, rural people, uh, people with a high unemployment rate, people whose public services have been cut, who no longer have uh, pharmacies or hospitals or dispensaries or schools. And, and they're living in these dying villages and they're bored and they don't have public transport and they m very much resent Paris and the elite and uh, so that's that's the real rift now in in French society and in French politics. It's between the haves and the have-nots, between those who have uh, profited from globalization, those who've become rich, who own property in Paris, for example, uh, and those who've been left behind. And Macron has recognized this, and he's reaching out to these people, and he's trying to explain things to them better. And he he says, I I, I realize where I was wrong, and and I, I've changed. Uh, this is Act Two of my presidency, and that's an impressive thing because very politicians like everyone else don't often change. Um, so he appears to be trying anyway. Given the weakness, Lara, of the two mainstream parties of the left and right that you mentioned there, is it possible that before the next election we'll see some of the high-profile figures of the past coming back, like uh, you know Sarkozy on the right or Ségolène Royal on the left? Or are those people gone from the national stage now? Uh, heaven forbid. <laughs> uh, actually, Sarkozy... Did they come back or that they're yes. gone? Yes. Uh, the funny thing is, I don't, I don't know why, but every time someone leaves office, they immediately be become much more popular. Uh, and all of these people write books. Uh, Sarkozy was on a book tour this summer. François Hollande has just published a book. And François Hollande's new gimmick is that he wants there to be a six-year presidential term instead of five years. I'm not really sure why he thinks this would... Um, dramatically change the, the... Actually, sorry to cut in, but I saw Hollande, he was on television last night talking about Islamic State, and it's the first time I'd seen him, and I thought, oh... Oh, he's, yeah, yeah, he, he wants mm. to, he's still there, he wants to exist, uh, so does Sarkozy. A lot of the people in Les, Re Les Républicains, in Sarkozy's party, really, really want him to come back. He remains popular in the party. Um, he's sort of the, the the power behind the scenes now and pulling the strings a bit, and they, they still go and pay homage to him and consult him and that sort of thing. It's not entirely impossible, but I think there really is a thirst now for newer, younger leaders, and, and Macron's election was symptomatic of that. I, I would be very surprised if any of, of the, the old-timers really came back in a big way. I mean, you could say Marine Le Pen is an old-timer. I mean, she's been on the political scene for a very long time. She took over the party in 2011, so we're, you know, almost up to a decade now. Uh, and even there, there's a generation gap between her and her niece, Marion Maréchal, uh, used the Le Pen name for a very long time and then who suddenly dropped the Le Pen name. She's Jean-Marie Le Pen's granddaughter. She's far more right-wing than her aunt. Uh, and she's also a devout Catholic and she has espoused the, the Catholic rights uh, values. She opposes same-sex marriage. She opposes abortion. Uh, and she's seen as very much the the future on the far right. Now, she has said she will not stand in 2022. Uh, Marine Le Pen wants to be a candidate again. So we're likely to see a rematch of Emmanuel Macron versus Marine Le Pen in 
too. Now, if something goes dramatically wrong for Macron in the meantime, um, and heaven knows that can, uh, things can go wrong, Marine Le Pen might stand a chance next time. She seems to think, and some political scientists think, that it's really a matter of time until the far right comes to power in France. One thing about Le Pen, I suppose, is her ideology is clear, it's explicit, it's well known. What about Macron? How would you just define his ideology? Um, it's, it's really a lack of ideology. He despises ideology. I think Macron thinks that, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, obviously, but he thinks that ideology basically wrecked the, the 20th century, and, and he may be right at that. Uh, he says that um, left and right are, are irrelevant now. These concepts no longer have any meaning. Uh, he's often classified as a, as a social democrat. Much of his entourage would have come from Dominique Strauss-Kahn's followers. These are people who believe in a, in a liberal economy, but in also taking care of uh, providing social protection for people. Um, so he'd be a social democrat, a liberal, a centrist. But he says, I feel free to take from both left and right, whatever is good, whatever is practical, whatever works in either uh, from either side, I will do it. And um, take, for example, his reform of the uh, unemployment uh, insurance scheme in France. On the one hand, he's made it much harder to qualify for benefits, which you could say is a right-wing policy. But on the other hand, he has increased training and hand-holding for jobless people, which you could say is a left-wing uh, sort of measure. And he's also increased punishment of companies who abuse these short-term contracts. There were a lot of French companies giving what, what the French call jobs, like McDonald's, where you know you hire a young person for six months and then and then fire them and they get they get no benefits or anything. So he's punishing those companies. And you could see that also as a, as a left-wing move. So he's saying there is no left and right. We, we want whatever works. Um, and that is his ideology. He, that said, uh, he does have an ideology in the sense that he's a multilateralist. He believes in the United Nations. He believes in the European Union, uh, like very much like Barack Obama uh, before him, whereas people like Marine Le Pen, of course, hate these multi multinational organizations. They're nationalists and they're, they're against multinationalism. Uh, and he believes in, in Europe. Uh, he believes in European integration. He wants a more united, more federal Europe. And that, that is one of the big struggles uh, at, at the heart of this opposition between him and the far right. There is a perception, though, that he has he is leaning more to the right on, on, on some issues, like immigration, for example. Has he hardened his stance on immigration? Absolutely, uh, he has. And What's behind that? Is he, is, it, is he kind of going after the far-right vote? I, I don't think he, any of Marine Le Pen voters would ever go over to Macron, but he's going after the right wing of the conservative party of the Les Républicains. He's already managed to siphon off a lot of their voters. They talk about the the, um, the conservative pole of his movement. And you have to remember his prime minister and finance minister and budget minister all came from Les Républicains. So he has, a, and actually he has an advisor, um, an old longtime gaullist operator who's now at the Elysee, who worked for Sarkozy and worked for Chirac, and, uh, and, and his job is just to cultivate 
les Républicains voters. And, and Macron is quite popular with them. And immigration, as you say, is a huge issue in France. Um, it turns out that France had more applicants, uh, more applications from asylum seekers than any other EU country last year. Now, the figures are kind of skewed because most of them came from Albania. No, the first, the number one country was Afghanistan. And then the second and third countries were Albania and Georgia. That's right, Albania and Georgia. Now, it, it turns out the reason this happened is because the EU uh, did away with visa requirements for Albanians and Georgians. So all these Albanians, I mean, thousands of them are coming to France and demanding political asylum, and something like 95% of them are being refused. So, But Macron is using this, this figure, this fact that I think it was 122,000 uh, people asked for asylum in France last year as grounds for toughening up his immigration policy. And he says we must make France less attractive. We must, must give immigrants fewer benefits. We, we will reduce the free medical care for immigrants, uh, and so on and so forth. And a, a lot of people, even within his République en marche, are offended by this, and they see they see it as pandering to the far right, and they say it's inhumane and so on. He says, I want a progressive immigration policy that will be both humane and efficient because, uh, and again, it's part of what we were talking about, who is his constituency. He says that the lower classes, people who are um, economically not well off are the ones who suffer from open doors, from, from uh, just laissez-faire immigration and to show them to gain their loyalty, we must stop this this policy, which hurts them. And he also wants immigrants who are refused asylum to be expelled quickly. Um, what has happened until now is that these people come in, they apply for asylum, they are refused asylum, and they stay anyway. And no one bothers to to take them home, you know, to put them on a plane and, and send them back. And Macron says this has got to stop. And he also wants there to be a, an EU policy. Uh, that protects the borders better and that distributes immigrants more fairly among countries. Um, he doesn't want Greece and Italy to have to take, you know, shoulder the burden. He wants countries like, say, Ireland or uh, Scandinavia or especially the Central European countries uh, who have refused, of course, uh, the Visegrad countries, uh, Hungary, Czech Republic and so on. He wants them to take more migrants. Now, people on the far right, of course, in France and elsewhere, continue to make this kind of link between immigration and having a, a liberal immigration policy with uh, the terrorist threat and the threat from Islamistic extremism in particular. And that's obviously France has suffered more from this than maybe any other country in, in, in the West in, in recent years. Um, how has Macron addressed that issue? Uh, that's a good question, Chris. The event which brought um, the whole question of Islam in French society back into the forefront was uh, the stabbing um, murder of four police officers in the Paris police headquarters at the beginning of October. And the, the killer uh, was actually working in the intelligence section that is supposed to follow radicalization of Muslims. He was himself a convert to Islam. He would go to the mosque every morning to pray before he came to work. Uh, he was wearing a, a jalaba, you know, Islamic robes and so on to the mosque. And there was a huge outcry after this horrible atrocity happened. He, after he stabbed his four colleagues to death, 
within the, the, the sanctuary of the police. Uh, people said, how could this possibly happen? Um, this is, you know, the wolf inside the, fall, the fold. Um, how, how could a man who was supposed to be tracking down radical Muslims be a radical Muslim himself? So, um, and then a subsequent event which also inflamed this issue was a, a mother accompanying a school group uh, in Dijon was wearing a headscarf. And a man from the Rassemblement National, the RN, Marine Le Pen's party, said she had to leave the room. And the poor woman was crying and her little boy was hugging his mother and hiding his face and he was crying and it blew up into a huge issue. Now, Macron is under a lot of pressure to take a position on this. He said uh, last week he was in, visiting the Indian Ocean. He said, it's not my problem whether a mother uh, accompanying a school group wears a headscarf or not. And that outraged a lot of people who said, it is your problem. Uh, this is a question of secularism in the republic. So now the left in France are talking about Islamophobia and the right are talking about preserving France's secular values. And Macron hasn't really come down clearly on this issue. He is supposed to make a major speech in the course of the month of November on secularism and religion in French society. So we'll see what he has to say. Uh, judging from past speeches and, and his book, uh, Révolution, which was sort of his campaign manifesto, uh, he, he really believes that you should let people uh, practice their religion freely, that that's what secularism means. And, and I think he would err on the side of, of tolerance uh, rather than Islamophobia. Um, but it's something that the far right will use to, to – it's a stick they'll use to beat him, certainly. They'll say that, you know, he's, he's too lenient and that he's fomenting terrorism and, and this sort of thing. And it's, it's an issue that has been um, very, very red hot in French society for – decades now. Um, since Jean-Marie Le Pen made, linked immigration and Islam in the 1970s, and sometimes it kind of dies down, and then there'll be an incident of a woman wearing a headscarf or a burqa or something. Or the, uh, there was a whole issue about women wearing Islamic dress on beaches. Uh, so it, it pops up in different forms. At the moment, the country is obsessing about whether or not the mothers of school children should be allowed to go out with classes on, on excursions wearing a headscarf. Uh, and it, it may seem crazy in, in English-speaking countries where that doesn't really bother anyone. But in, in France, it really is a major issue. I wanted to ask you as well, Laura, about Macron and the European Union. We've seen in the last couple of weeks alone a couple of examples or incidents where France seemed to stand alone, stand apart from the rest of Europe. First, there was the question of the extension that, uh, sought by the UK to, to uh, Brexit. Um, France was, was reluctant to grant the, the extension until the end of January that um, the other 26 seemed to support. There was also the issue of... Um, the accession countries, countries seeking to join the European Union, where France has put a block on, on that on that process, and it's got a lot of criticism for it. Um, to move on from Brexit, say to look at the post-Brexit scenario, in what direction do you think Macron wants to to take the European Union um, in, in in the future? 
uh, in one phrase, he says he wants a deeper European Union uh, rather rather than a wider European Union. Um, that's why France did not support accession talks for uh, Albania and Macedonia. They, they say we have enough problems as is that we need to resolve. We need to be more unified, stronger, uh, more powerful. We need to resolve the problem of you know nationalist, populist, right-wing parties like the AFD or in, in Germany or the Liga in Italy. Um, he wants to deal with those things first before they they, they start extending the EU further. Um, Fran the French are extremely proud of the fact that the EU has maintained its unity throughout the Brexit crisis. And uh, Macron's advisors, when explaining the fact that he gave in on the extension until January 31st, said, we value unity of the 27 above all else, and we, we gave in on this for the sake of unity. Um, that said, Macron sees himself of, as a leader, if not the leader of Europe, uh, which indeed he is, because Angela Merkel is on her way out. Um, you know, Boris Johnson, well, I don't need to tell you, um, he's certainly not a leader in any sense, and he's, he's also <laughs> really out on, on his way out. And there's, there's nobody else, really. Um, is, is Macron really waiting for the Merkel succession to happen and then to try and form a kind of new French-German German axis at the heart of Europe? Um, yes, except that that, uh, that the woman known as AKK, um, Merkel's designated successor, seems to be in political difficulties in Germany now. I know the, the French were very pleased at the prospect of a younger woman coming in. She's also from the La Rhineland and speaks French fluently, which always pleases the French. And I, I think they were hoping that could rejuvenate the, the, the Franco-German engine, uh, forgive the cliche, but they, that's always used. Um, the the Franco-German relation has it is extremely close, but it's never easy. It's in very much uh, it's very much a ritualized relationship where they have joint cabinet meetings and the two leaders talk to each other and they go back and forth and so on. But they they do have very different worldviews. Uh, they have different views of the economy. The French want the Germans to invest more and and to. Um, whittle away a bit at their huge um, balance of, of payments um, surplus. Uh, the Germans want the French to be more fiscally conscientious. Uh, the fact that Macron forked out 17 billion euro to to end the gilet jaune crisis in in um, supplementary benefits and tax reductions that would not please the Germans at all because they think the French are profligate spenders and and so on and so forth and at the same time Macron wants uh, budgetary cooperation in the eurozone and the Germans are haunted by the idea that they're going to pay for everyone else uh, so that's that's a difficult. Um, situation, but yes, I think the French have hopes of of getting on better with Merkel's successor. I mean, they don't have bad relations; they're just kind of it's like a very old marriage that's been going on for decades. It it has been going on since uh, De Gaulle and Adenauer in the 1960s, and it has its ups and downs. I mentioned at the outset that Macron promised to reform the French economy and its labor laws, and in particular, has he done that? Um, amazingly. Uh, yes, up to a point. Um, he, everyone said he could never reform the labor law. He did. Um, there were some protests, but nothing on the scale of what we expected. 
it is now much easier to, to fire people in France um, for forever. Basically, you couldn't fire anyone. Um, and now he's also reformed the unemployment insurance scheme. As I mentioned earlier, uh, it's harder to qualify now for benefits. Um, one thing that always shocked me, and I have friends who've, who've lived through this, was one in five unemployed French people were actually earning more money on benefits than when they were working. And Macron is ending that. Actually, the unemployment, uh, the new unemployment law uh, takes effect on November 1st. And the unions are complaining. They say that it's persecution of the unemployed and so on. But he did it. Um, now the last big uh, stretch is uh, reform of the pension system. France has 40 do, 42 different pension regimes. And Macron says we've got to have one system for everybody. And they have to all be under the same criteria, um, you know, same, same rules, for same benefits. And this is being resisted. Uh, the trade unions have declared December 5th a national strike day. Um, everyone is kind of waiting to see, will this really shut down the country on December 5th? It is actually the anniversary of the big demonstration in 1995 um, when the transport unions brought down, well, not they didn't bring him down on the day, but they started these demonstrations and strikes, which lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it brought down the Alain Juppé's government. So, you know, there's a bit of nail-biting there. Will they start a an open-ended strike or will it just will they have their say and that'll be the end of it? And nobody's really sure yet, but that's that's the big upcoming challenge. Macron must be said, he's he's very uh, shrewd in the way he deals with these things. Uh, he said, for example, that this pension reform will not actually take effect until 2025. So psychologically, you can think, well, you know, that's six years away. Am I really that worried about it? The other thing he said is that it won't affect anyone who's 56 or older. Uh, they will remain under the former pension regime. And he said that that, that figure is, is flexible and we can talk about, you know, at what age will it take effect and so on. Some people are pushing for it to only affect people who are entering the job market now which would mean it wouldn't really take effect for a whole generation. So uh, there's a lot of wriggle room there, and, and we'll see what happens. You anticipated my last question there, Lara, which is really what has he left to do? You know, what can we expect from the, the second half of Macron's first term? But is, is that that's the next big battle, pension reform then, is it? It is, and, and it may turn out like uh, the labor, labor code and the unemployment insurance, it may turn out not to be a big battle at all. Uh, but I, I think the immigration and the role of Islam in French society, those obviously are issues that are not going away. The issue of uh, nationalist populism is not going away. And especially the issue of the European Union and can it be renovated? Uh, can it be made a more dynamic force? Macron says the EU must demonstrate that it can protect people and it must demonstrate that it is a power to be reckoned with. Uh, and I think actually that's a big, big challenge for him as big as Islam and immigration and pension reform. Lara, thanks again for coming in. Great to see you. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself 
The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with The Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply.